From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. With a new year and a new Congress, Democrats now control the House. And while climate skeptics still rule the Republican Senate and White House, green activists say Dem House Committee chairs will change the game. I feel so relieved and so excited that we now have a pro-environment majority in the House of Representatives after years of doing battle with the most anti-environmental House of Representatives ever. With high rates of cancer in Kerala, India, people are turning to organic agriculture and urban gardeners are leading the way. We decided to call all our family here that we made food out of what we grown from our terrace. We'll have uh, boiled rice, there would be a curry that is called a sambar. So it would be a complete vegetarian feast. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Congressional Democrats now hold the House majority for the first time in almost a decade, and that will make a difference for environmental affairs. For starters, Speaker Nancy Pelosi of California has rebooted the old House Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming into a new House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. The Climate Crisis panel doesn't have subpoena powers or the ability to advance legislation to the House floor. But Speaker Pelosi declared, quote, this committee will be critical to the entire Congress's mission to respond to the urgency of this threat while creating the good-paying green jobs of the future. The speaker named six-term Florida Congresswoman Kathy Castor as climate crisis chair. She represents the low-lying Tampa area, which narrowly avoided catastrophe in October of 2018 during Hurricane Michael. Ms. Castor co-chaired a Democratic House report in May of 2018 about what it called Trump's toxic team of environmental officials, detailing allegations of corruption, self-dealing, and abuse of taxpayer money at the expense of public health and safety. And of her new role, Kathy Castor says, quote, the select committee on the climate crisis and the new generation of leaders in Congress who understand the scientific imperative will tackle the crisis head on. Failure is not an option. For insights on some standing committee chairs, we called up the senior vice president of governmental affairs for the League of Conservation Voters, Tiernan Sittenfeld. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So big change up there on the House in terms of folks who are now coming into power who are concerned about environmental protection, huh? Very big change. We are absolutely thrilled to have a pro-environment majority in the House of Representatives and eager to get to work. Now, when you say you have a pro-environment majority, you base that on what? So we base it on the enthusiasm and the energy and the expertise of the new members combined with the returning members. We have a bunch of new members of Congress who Many of them ran on protecting the environment, on fighting the climate crisis. And in fact, 56 of the 62 new members of the House of Representatives supported 100% clean energy by 2050 on the campaign trail. So here we are. It's a new year and a new Democratic majority in the House of Representatives for the 116th Congress. So one of the things about being in the majority is that Now the senior members of the various committees chair them, and they have all kinds of power from subpoena to holding hearings. So let's talk about some of these new chairs for the committees that are connected to the environment. Frank Pallone, a junior of New Jersey, will be chairing Energy and Commerce. What do you expect his priorities will be? 
Frank Pallone is a longtime environmentalist. He has a 96% lifetime score on LCV's National Environmental Scorecard. And we know that he cares deeply about fighting for clean air and clean water, and especially for fighting climate change. And he made clear already after the elections, once it was clear that he would be the incoming chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, that he wanted to take early and significant action on climate change. So we're really looking forward to working with him and his staff. Now, what do you suppose he will do in terms of his ability to call parts of the administration up to the Hill and ask questions? I expect him to be very tough when it comes to investigating just how much the Trump administration has been in bed with their polluter allies. And we have seen the devastating impacts of climate change as they continue to try to double down on the dirty, failed, fossil fuel-friendly policies of the past. So we expect that to be a real priority for Chairman Pallone. Now, over at the House Natural Resources Committee, Raul Grijalva of Arizona will take over now as chair. Tell me what you expect his agenda will be there. Congressman Grijalva is a real champion when it comes to protecting public lands and wildlife. And he has a 96% lifetime score on LCV's National Environmental Scorecard, which is quite impressive. He got 100% in 2017. And he's not just a good vote. He really cares when it comes to protecting our public lands, especially our national monuments. He's been a real fighter for full funding and permanent reauthorization of the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And we see there's going to be lots of oversight opportunities for looking at all of the egregious rollbacks and attacks of public lands protections over the last couple of years from the Trump administration. Peter DeFazio of Oregon, the incoming chair of transportation and infrastructure. Tell me what you think is on Congressman DeFazio's agenda as he comes in as chair. Congressman DeFazio is a longtime environmentalist, and we believe that he and the Democrats across the board, for the most part, are really serious about putting forward an infrastructure proposal that is going to promote clean energy, it's going to promote clean water infrastructure. We hope that it will really be a down payment on the many important needs in addressing climate change across this country. Senator Schumer actually published a great op-ed in the Washington Post in December and sent a letter to President Trump saying that infrastructure was an opportunity to work together and to get something done for the country, but only if it was an opportunity to address the climate crisis and to promote clean energy. So we're really excited about that approach. Let me ask you about the incoming chair now of the Science, Space, and Technology Committee. That's Eddie Bernice Johnson uh, from Texas. What do you think her agenda is going to be going forward now as chair of that committee? We've been really excited about some of the remarks and the comments that we've seen from Eddie Bernice Johnson, which could not contrast more strongly with her predecessor, more strongly with the Trump administration, which clearly denies basic science, particularly the basic science of climate change. So we think that she is going to work closely with scientists. She's going to rely on science. She's going to promote science. And that's absolutely the way it should be. And we cannot wait to get to work with her. In 2018 and even in 2017, we saw a number of cases where Federal scientists were being harassed, intimidated, being pushed off of advisory committees and all that sort of thing. What do you think incoming Chairwoman Johnson will do about that situation, the intimidation of our of our federal scientists? One of the most disgraceful aspects of the Trump administration, and I know that's a big statement because there's so many things that are so disgraceful about this administration, but the intimidation of scientists, the gagging of scientists, the dismissing of years and years of science and research is so appalling. And it could not be more important to everything that 
Eddie Bernice Johnson move in a different direction, and we're confident she's going to do exactly that. With these new uh, House committee chairs and the new Democratic majority, what do you think the House will be able to achieve in the coming years in terms of environmental protection, given that the Senate still remains in Republican hands, as does the White House? We are really excited about the opportunity for this new pro-environment majority in the House of Representatives to make progress when it comes to protecting the environment and public health, and especially to combating the climate crisis. That said, as you just noted, we still have a Senate led by Mitch McConnell, who is a climate change denier, and we still have Trump in the White House. So we don't anticipate major climate legislation getting enacted into law, but the oversight opportunities are extremely important to make crystal clear for all people in this country what is at stake for the air that they breathe, for the water that they drink, for the lands and the wildlife that they cherish. And we really need to understand in a very clear way who is benefiting, clearly in this case, the polluters, the oil and gas companies, the coal companies, at the expense of our health, of our communities. There has been a bipartisan caucus about climate change called the Climate Solutions Caucus. How is that caucus now going to proceed in the House, do you think? It will be interesting to see how the bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus proceeds in the 116th Congress. And that is partly because that caucus was basically decimated of the 45 Republicans who were part of it. I believe 24 of them lost their seats. But we hope that those Republicans who are left and who remain in that caucus are actually sincere about addressing the climate crisis and that they're going to want to work across the aisle to make progress. Because, of course, if we look back to our bedrock environmental laws, they were passed by overwhelming bipartisan majorities and largely signed into law by a Republican president. So historically, the environment enjoys bipartisan support. I think, unfortunately, with the rise of the Koch brothers and Citizens United and Americans for Prosperity and others, that we have seen the environment become more of a partisan issue, really because the polluter allies on the Republican side have just dragged their party so far to the right and radical direction. But we would love to have Republicans come back and work with us on common sense solutions to addressing the climate crisis. And I think we actually have seen some progress at the state level, even during the Trump administration, with state legislators and Republican governors saying, no, we're still in, we still care about climate change, obviously we have to act. So we'd love to see more of that in Congress as we move forward. Tiernan, let's step back for a moment and, and give me the big picture. How do you feel about the future of the House in terms of its ability to protect the public interest in the environment in these coming years. I feel so relieved and so excited that we now have a pro-environment majority in the House of Representatives after years of doing battle with the most anti-environmental House of Representatives ever. And while we still have extreme Republican leadership in the Senate and we still have Trump in the White House, the opportunity to go back on offense, whether it's doing government oversight and accountability of the Trump administration's efforts to sell out our environment and our health to polluters at every opportunity, or whether it's the opportunity to push for a climate smart green infrastructure package or to push for 100% clean energy. I feel really optimistic and excited about the opportunity for progress over the next couple of years with even more progress to come after the 2020 elections. Tiernan Settenfeld is the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for Legal Conservation Voters. Thanks for taking the time with us today, Tiernan. Thank you, Steve.
If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. Kerala, India could be paradise. Tucked along the western side of the southern tip of India, the state is always warm or even hot, wet, and luxuriant. Coconut palms fringe its beaches and line its roads, crops grow year-round, and Keralans are among the best educated in the world, with a literacy rate of about 98%. Kerala grows spices, including cinnamon, nutmeg, and pepper, but today its biggest export is its people— who work in businesses and bureaucracies in the Middle East, and remit money back home. That cash has boosted Kerala's financial economy, but it has also left it short of people to work the land. There is locally produced rice, but most of the food is imported, and both rice and imports rely heavily on chemicals. Alarm at excess chemicals in food and rising cancer rates caused the Kerala government to pledge to go 100% organic by 2020. Living on Earth's Helen Palmer took a trip there to check it out. It's pilgrimage season when I arrive in Kerala's capital, Trivandrum. Streets are thronged with devout Hindus wearing black dhotis, the wide length of cotton cloth Indian men wear knotted round the waist. They trudge barefoot from the central railway station to the monumental Sri Padmanabhaswami temple, reputedly the richest in the world. To a visitor, it's a reminder of the deep history and traditions still powerful in modern Kerala, which is actually dealing with a modern plague, rising rates of cancer widely blamed on pesticides and chemicals in food. Biju Prabhakar is Director of Agricultural Development for Kerala. I was a food safety commissioner of the state. I was food safety commissioner of the state in 2010 to 2013, during which we have found that lots of pesticide residue are on vegetables, and antibiotics on meat and poultry. Or even some of the fish sellers or ice factory owners. They were keeping fish in formalin and ammonium sulfate and that kind of chemicals. So, this was actually widely publicized in the media that these kinds of spurious material are in our food. And the medical community agreed this is one of the main reasons for the cancer, because Kerala has a high incidence of cancer. In the three years up to 2016, cancer rates in Kerala rose over 10% faster than in most of the country, and two-thirds of cases proved fatal due to a lack of specialized care. Biju Prabhakar says public anxiety and the cancer linked with pesticides in food, much of which is imported, is why there's such urgency to become self-sufficient in local organic produce. Now people are, uh, are really aware about this. Now people are really aware about this. And during the last three to four years, the production of vegetables has almost doubled. And we're trying to reach the target of nearly around 20 lakh. 20 lakh. 200,000 tons of this vegetable to be produced over here. We are just short of that, 100,000. So the state is poised to convert itself to not only vegetables, coconut, everything, has to be certified without chemicals. 
Rice is the main local grain, and though Kerala traditionally grows 600 varieties, most commercial paddy fields are full of high-yielding hybrid strains grown with chemicals. Export crops, spices like black pepper, turmeric and cardamom, and commodities like rubber, coffee and coconuts occupy a third of the state's agricultural land, and farmers favour them over labour-intensive vegetables, partly because there's a shortage of farm labour. That's one result of Kerala's low birth rate, related to the high level of education, which also means there are better paying jobs to choose. And the state has other hurdles to boosting food production to meet its goal of going 100% organic by 2020. Kerala's rice pot is a narrow coastal plain sandwiched between the sea and the western ghats, thickly forested highlands in the west. One major thing which is needed, especially for the poor farmers, is land. Usha Shulapani, director of the sustainability non-profit Tanal, says that shortage of agricultural land gets worse because fields are given as dowries when girls get married, or is subdivided between the farmer's sons. More than 92% of land holdings in the state are less than half an acre. So farms become too small to be economically viable, and since other jobs pay better, working on the land fell out of favour. In the last 10-20 years, what is happening in Kerala is that because people were moving away from farming, most of the people who have land, they are into other occupation. So the land is lying fallow. No? So the people start seeing cheap land. So people with other interest come and buy. This view of land as commodity has led to speculation and urbanization and a real estate boom that caters to Kerala's returning from abroad with cash and looking for larger houses. On top of that, says Usha, there's a problem with the agricultural leases for landless farmers. They're too brief. We need a policy for leasing, where uh, the farmers, the poor farmers need to get land for on a long-term basis, or five to ten years like that, not for one year. With a one-year lease, farmers have little incentive to improve the quality of the soil. Agricultural Director Biju Prabhakar says there's a plan to ensure that land doesn't lie fallow if an absentee landlord isn't using it. So, absentee farmers, so absentee farmers will not allow not even a single land parcel to remain without cultivation. We are formulating that kind of a law which will encourage the leasing of land to other farmers or farmer collectives. Or otherwise, we are planning to have some kind of a taxation on those who are idling on the land. Ultimately, land is not the property of an individual. It's the property of the state. It's the property of the state. Taxing or taking over fallow land is all part of the communist state government's comprehensive Green Kerala program that covers everything from planting vegetable gardens in schools to composting food waste to create biogas. To help generate more income for farmers, Green Kerala mounted an ambitious agripreneurship fair at the former Maharaja's Kanakakunu Palace to showcase ideas to add value to everything, from coconut fibre for shoes and handbags to root vegetables. Technical officer Sophia Shanavas of the Central Tuba Crop Research Institute points proudly to a pile of unfamiliar knobbly roots of all shapes, sizes and colours taro, cassava, yams, and tells me there are endless ways to use them. Whatever you can prepare with potato, we can prepare with all tuber crops. Cassava chips we are having, sweet potato chips we are having, taro chips we are having, then we have noodles, then we have pasta. He tells me farmers can bring their crops to the Tuber Research Institute, which will use their fancy machines to turn them into jam and flour and snacks. 
Cassava is gluten-free, Shanavas tells me, and many of these roots are loaded with antioxidants. Indeed, that's one thing I found most striking. Every food, every spice anyone grows here seems to have some special health benefits. It fights cancer. It's good for the heart. This focus resonates with the Indian tradition of Ayurvedic medicine, and some 30 years ago Kerala opened the world's first Ayurvedic resort. Several stands at the fair celebrate Jack, the wonder fruit. It's a massive, spiky, yellowish-brown tree fruit, very fibrous and versatile, and very good, I'm told, for fighting diabetes. From the seed, we make uh, cakes and the biscuits, and uh, from the spikes, we make pickles. It's very tasty and very spicy, okay? And we can make uh, that wine. It's actually banned in Kerala. No wine in Kerala? No, there is wine, but it, it's illegal, okay? <laughs> From the pulp, we can make juice, jam, squash, a lot of things, halwa. So jackfruit makes many, many things? Yes, of course. Around uh, 3,000 products, we can make it from jackfruit. The palace is packed with curious Kerelans keen to try free samples and check out the displays of local fishes and biodiversity. One agriculture officer tells me it's becoming very trendy now to be interested in growing food. But it's no easy task to increase organic food production, and even the productivity of commercial rice is falling, partly due to problems with the soil itself. Kerala's earth is mostly acidic, so it needs lime. That tends to leach out with the heavy rainfall, and feeding the soil properly is vital. But government subsidies don't help the average farmer do that. Despite the ambitious long-term plans to help the switch to organic practices, the state's yearly budgets are always squeezed. The subsidies only cover the cheapest form of nitrogen fertilizer, urea, and not the other major components of healthy soil that organic crops need, such as phosphorus and potassium. Thomas Anis Johnson is a soil survey officer who teaches at Kerala Agricultural University. The typical India government subsidy is given for uh, the major nutrients only, that to the nitrogen fertilizers. That the urea is mainly subsidized and the other nutrients are being imported, so they are not given subsidy. Lime is also sometimes not given at a subsidized rate, so lime application is also not practiced mostly. Give me some idea of what the subsidized price for the fertilizer would be versus what has to be imported. So here the subsidized urea is given at around 5 rupees per kg, while the other nutrients, that is phosphorus and potash, around 20 to 25 rupees per kg, so that is uh, three to four times the price of the urea. Without a thick layer of organic mulch to retain water, urea tends to make the soil more acidic, and not adding minerals due to the cost helps create micronutrient deficiencies. Lack of boron and magnesium, for example, affect crop quality and yield. Government figures show Kerala's farmers are inefficient. More generous support could help them improve soil health and the nutritional value of their produce, and that in turn could help public health, ultimately reducing the private and public expense of treating so many cancer cases. And the Agricultural University is dealing with another headache that plagues farmers, a bumper crop of insects. The university is a sprawling, leafy campus outside Thrissur, the cultural capital of Kerala, that's dedicated to improving the state's food, farmers' methods and pest control. Entomology professor Berin Patros, trim and bald with a moustache and glasses, tells me the state's warm tropical climate means that harmful insects, literally, have a year-round field day. He shows off a bunch of them in a large display case in the hall outside his office. This section carries the pests of fruit crops. 
mango, banana, guava, jack, papaya, pomegranate, litchi, grapes, citrus, etc. We have a major pest called mango stem borer. It's This very big. It's, it's, a, it's about an yeah. inch and a half. Yeah, uh, yeah it's more than, more than that if you consider the length of its antennae. It can bore into the heavy trunk of mangoes. It will kill the mango. In the citrus, we have citrus but, uh, butterflies. It's a very uh, good looking butterflies. Then coming to the next section is the plantation crops. Kerala is known for several plantation crops where we have coconut, cashew, coffee, arecanut, rubber, ginger, etc. To combat all these harmful insects, Professor Patro specializes in biocontrol agents, organic methods specific to each pest. But he tells me climate change and the insect's ability to adapt make it a constant cat and mouse game to keep up. His plant pathologist colleague, Resmi Vijaya Raghavan, a slim woman in a colorful sari, says the benefit of biocontrol methods is that they not only build resistance in the plants, they help increase the harvest. Yet she doubts that Kerala can achieve its ambitious goal of totally organic food by 2020. Uh, no, actually, uh, I wouldn't support uh, total organic cultivation because once the disease occurs, uh, no biocontrol agents are found to be effective. So in such cases, you have to resort to chemical pesticides. So the halfway organic, halfway chemical pesticides, uh, that is the only way out. Uh, if you go for organic cultivation, uh, the farmers might uh, strike with a big loss. She argues it's particularly the main commercial crop, rice, and spices like black pepper, nutmeg and cinnamon that need chemical treatments. But some traditional methods, such as intercropping, using locally adapted indigenous seeds and crop rotation, could help prevent infestations in the first place. Still, Kerala's developed a whole cottage industry to make biocontrol agents for the farm and home. I drop in on the nerve centre of one of the most energetic groups, headed by a cheerful, determined woman in a brilliant blue and green tunic over bright green pants, who arrives on a motorbike. Helen. I am Helen. You are Asharaj. Asharaj. I am so pleased to meet you. Yes. She takes me to a spartan, functional back room. I'm agriculture officer. I'm Asha Raj. My name is Asha Raj. And uh, our Kerala government has sent me to National Institute of Plant Health Management, Hyderabad, for understanding about the various techniques about the on-farm production of biocontrol agent. Asha Raj brought that technical know-how back from Hyderabad and now spearheads an SHG, a self-help group of women, many poor and barely educated, who make these biocontrol mixtures at her office. It's a modest, somewhat ramshackle building that doubles as a plant nursery. She says farmers might want to use fewer pesticides, but organic treatments still aren't widely available and they cost too much, so she's passing on what she's learned. Here, uh, we are training the farmers in such a mode that they can produce these on-farm biocontrol agents in their farm itself. She shows me the treatments they make. Some feature concentrated cow urine, which she tells me can both kill insects and improve soil. Then there are bottles of biorepellents with garlic and neem oil for pests like thrips. Fruit fly traps powered by pheromones to protect cucumbers. Jars of pseudomonas and trichloderma fungi that control soil pathogens. Shall we go upstairs? Oh, I see all your seedlings there. 
There are rows and rows of pots of plants, rice, tomatoes, eggplants and peppers on the terrace, and Asha Raj tells me they inoculate the roots with helpful fungi called VAM, vesicular arbuscular mycorrhiza, to produce a biofertilizer that helps plants take up nutrients. These are rice, are they? Yeah, yeah, it's rice, because in the fibrous root system, VAM uh, is very, very much uh, good to grow. So basically, this is stuff that you grow and then you give to the farmers or sell to the farmers? Yeah, this is uh, being produced by our SHG and it is supplied to the farmers in the Ultravandram district. Asha Raj says she's already trained dozens of farmers and it's paying off for them. Their organic crops now sell for prices at least 50% higher than conventional ones. But making those higher prices a reality for every farmer is a steep hill to climb. Usha Shulapani of the non-profit Tanal says what financial help the government does offer needs to be firmly focused not on what's being grown, but on the farmer. Till now, the whole policy was not farmer-centric. It was crop-centric. Who get, need to get the support is farmer, not the crop. We have to promote mixed cropping and also crop rotation for the farmers to become sustainable in the, uh, both economically and ecologically. Kerala's agriculture director, Biju Prabhakar, is fine with supporting the farmers. But he says in the name of public health and their own health, people should be happy to pay higher prices for safe, nutritious food. The farmers have to be subsidized. Farmers have to be subsidized because they are the persons who are producing. The question is whether you'd like to pay more for foodstuffs or whether you like to pay at least 10 times in the hospital for treatment of some of the disease. Treatment of some of the disease. And Ushashulapani says another shift to make the organic goal a reality is reviving old indigenous varieties. They are more nutritious and could be a hedge against climate change, along with permaculture practices. I'm struck by how the solutions she says Kerala needs sound remarkably like the fixes organic enthusiasts recommend here in the US. Maybe, in the end, since we have just one earth, feeding and caring for the soil is the key to health and nutritious food for all of us, whether we pray to Vishnu or some other god. Coming up, Helen Palmer continues her report from Kerala to tell us about urban residents who are taking up organic gardening on small plots and terraces. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We continue our story now about the organic goals in Kerala. In order to reach 100% organic agriculture by 2020, the government will need to rethink the way it subsidizes farmers and distributes land. But many of the Carolan people are already taking up organic gardening on their rooftops with enthusiasm and passion. Living on Earth's Helen Palmer has our story. To see what organic home gardening means in practice in Kerala, I took a bumpy taxi down dusty, potholed lanes to the outskirts of the capital, Trivandrum, to meet Sujita Sudakaran. Hi, Sujita. Thank you for coming to meet me. <laughs> it's so nice to meet you. It's so great to meet you. Sujita's medium height and plump, with laughing black eyes and a royal blue blouse over maroon pants. 
She and her husband Manu live in a tidy square house set back from the road amid a riot of green, flanked by fruit trees with dozens of pots full of plants and water lilies crowding the front courtyard. Actually, I have almost uh, 27 varieties of water lilies here and uh, mainly these are tropical varieties which blooms a lot mm -hmm. and uh, all the dragonflies and butterflies, honeybees, all these get attracted to these water bodies and my pollination in my vegetable garden is taken care of by these flies and bees. <laughs> and that looks like a grapevine growing over the, uh, yes. over the trellis on the top here. Yes, yes, it's a grapevine. I planted it one year back and I am expecting fruits this year because the grapes that we get here is almost full of uh, pesticides they spray a lot of pesticides in order to get the fruits so I thought okay at least one bunch I can eat without pesticide <laughs> pesticides that's the problem Sujita and thousands of other concerned Carolans are trying to solve by going organic both doctors and the public believe chemicals lurking in food share a large part of the blame for high levels of cancer in Kerala, and that's led the state government to call for a totally organic agricultural sector by 2020. One group of Keralans in particular has taken up gardening without pesticides or chemical fertilizers with special zeal, educated professionals. Take this retired bank executive who lives on a busy street behind a sturdy metal gate in a fashionable Trivandrum suburb. I am Unnikrishnan. I was designated the agriculture officer, financing farmers and agriculturists, and that was a turning point in midlife. Unnikrishnan is tall, earnest, and white-haired. That turning point, working with farmers, made him retire from his safe, comfortable job at the State Bank of Travancore 12 years early to grow his own food and to teach other people how to do the same. He says he's inspired hundreds. Uh, around 400 to 500 people I've inspired. You know. Really? Sure, sure, yes, sure. Through that uh, Facebook media also, people will get inspired. In his large garden behind the gate, neat rows of dozens of pots of chilies, okra, eggplant, amaranth and cabbages spill over from the garden to the patio. On his three roof terraces, gourds and tomatoes hang from the tall shade trellis he built with hemp rope and bamboo. On a wall, scarlet chilli peppers sit on a plate drying in the sun. Uni says he has to water his many pots and bags twice a day and it takes hours, but that's okay, it's his passion. My work is my hobby. It's a kind of meditation for me. I don't uh, identify outside world when I do this work. His garden is a calm oasis on a busy street with high brick walls surrounded by tall coconut palms. He shows me the potting mix he prepares and hands out with grow bags. This is potting mix I give. Uh, potting mix is a combination of uh, soil, then pit, uh, then, uh, then organic fertilizer also. Uh, how is the soil in Kerala? Actually, it's a bit acidic in Kerala. So for that, you, you can use uh, that uh, lime to make it alkaline. The poor soil, he points to, is not a problem for home gardeners like Uni Krishnan, who takes feeding the soil very seriously and can easily afford that lime. At her home, Sujita Sudakaran has her own complex system set up outside her kitchen, where workmen are installing a new cupboard for her. For my plants which are on the top, I make compost. I make wormy compost and I make uh, bokashi composting. So bokashi is what? It's not a word I know. Uh, actually, it's a Japanese word <laughs> uh, uh, which means ferment. 
to ferment and it's a technology wherein we add micronutrients directly to the compost so that the uh, decaying process fastens so i get almost all the uh, compost which is required for my uh, plants from my home itself i don't buy it from outside <laughs> she points to her dozens of buckets old industrial containers salvaged from the scrap heap this is mainly my composting area oh i see you've got <laughs> Many, many big, yeah, many, many big containers. Uh, these are all full of, of uh, compost, compost being made. One will be full of cow dung, one will be with another type of compost, one will be with coffee grounds and eggshells, and uh, this one is like uh, rice water, uh, starch, which I use as a pesticide. This is a biogas plant wherein I can put all my uh, waste into it and the biogas slurry will be collected at the other end, which I can use as a fertilizer for my plants. So they collect the, the biogas and use the biogas and what's yes. left you can use as fertilizer? Yes, uh, the gas I can use for cooking and uh, the slurry, the leftover, that I can use for my plants. Gosh, so what goes into the biogas plant? All the waste, that means kitchen waste. We can put fish waste, chicken waste, not the bones, but the other meat part we can put in there. Leftover rice we can put in there. Except uh, lemon, we cannot put that. Onion peels, we cannot put that also. So all the other things, it goes into that. Wow, and it <laughs> generates biogas for you. Yes, for that's cooking and at the same time the slurry is collected. That's extraordinary that somebody does that at, on a home level, you know. <laughs> yeah. And Sujita is extraordinary. We climb up to her roof terrace, where she keeps an aquaponic system and grows rice. There are fishes inside this Oh, I tank. see. What, what kind of fishes? They look like goldfish. Uh, this is a pearl spotted fish, and this, there is another one, a gift to tilapia. Uh -huh. yeah. I harvested, I, I planted a paddy but I harvested and now it's not there. This is the second crop. This is a kind of spinach. Uh -huh. These are chili plants. I pruned it. Yes. And uh, these are cowpeas. Oh. I'm astonished by how much food she can grow in her bags and pots. They're just pots. They're not garden beds. Sujita's husband, Manu, tells me she grew enough food for a feast for their whole extended family at India's Thanksgiving, the late summer harvest festival, Onam. Last Onam, we decided to, uh, to get call our, all our family here and we all joined and we made food out of what we grown from our terrace. So completely it was from our terrace. So what did you actually eat? Uh, we made, we call it sadhya. We'll have uh, boiled rice. There would be something called avial which is made out of for different vegetables. We, we use a lot of vegetables and there would be a curry that is called a sambar. Uh, which is made out of, uh, again, vegetables. So it would be a complete vegetarian feast. So including the rice, everything for the required for that was grown here in our terrace. The bounty of food from organic home gardeners like Sujita has helped launch another Kerala innovation, organic markets. On Saturdays, small farmers and rooftop cultivators bring their spare produce to the Centenary Indoor Stadium. It's a large shed in the heart of Kerala's cultural capital, Thrissur, about 180 miles north of Trivandrum. Outside the stadium, incessant traffic circles a large park where a solemn elephant tethered under large trees munches on palm fronds. Inside, 
Trestle tables are piled high with bananas and squash, spinach, tamarind, bottles of coconut oil, yams, papaya, and spiky young jackfruit. The place is packed, and I'm instantly cornered by a large man. My name is not that difficult. It's Paul Joseph. He tells me he's at the market as a buyer and a seller. I have an orchard where I have uh, most of the things, like uh, most of the vegetables and fruits. I have uh, different varieties of papaya, red lady and one variety from US also I have. And uh, I do have a lot of naranjas, you know, citrus fruits. Uh-huh, so and you, oranges and... Not oranges. Oranges are not grown in this part of the lime, different types of limes. Limes, okay. And, you know, leafy vegetables, plenty leafy vegetables. Paul Joseph retired after 28 years as a chief engineer in the Merchant Marine. And he's an enthusiastic guide to the market, identifying unfamiliar-looking vegetables. What is that? that spinach. Very That's a different That's type spinach. of spinach. Uh -huh. What are those things besides? The other one is, uh, you know, a banana tree. Uh, yeah. the, the stem of banana tree. Stem of the banana? Banana tree. They say that it's very good for uh, diabetes and all those things. And the next one is loony. Noni. It's an antioxidant. They say that it's very good for cancer. Is, is it, it's a Brazilian fruit. It's a, it's a fruit. So it's, it's a fruit. A fruit. And, that's and the next one is a yam. A yam? Okay. Yeah. There are two different uh, interesting things. This is the urine of the cow. <laughs> it's used in two ways. One, this is used as pesticide and also as medicine. As medicine? Yeah. People take it, people drink it. Yeah, uh, uh, how do they use it? I have no idea. It's a general health tonic. I'm saying general health tonic it is. People drink it? Ah, drink it. Would you want to taste? Want to taste? No. <laughs> Cows, of course, are sacred in Hindu India, and though about 20% of Kerala's population are Catholics, like Paul Joseph, cow manure and urine are still put to many uses. There are good things to eat at the market, too. As well as selling spinach and curry leaf, Shiba, a homemaker in a brilliant fuchsia headscarf, has prepared adder, a popular sweet snack of rice flour, grated coconut, and jaggery, raw coconut sugar wrapped in a banana leaf. It's making all the rice powder and including inside sweets. And you cook it in a banana? Uh, banana leaf. Uh -huh. And you, you boil it? Or? Steaming. Steam. Steam. Yes. It's very sweet, but actually quite delicious. Among the farmers are retired doctors and university professors and business people. Another homemaker, Sina Mohan, dressed in a stylish sari and married to the owner of two movie theatres, is there buying organic tomato seedlings with her daughter Sapna, an eye doctor who explains her mother's plans. We have an empty space, so she likes to do a bit of farming. Actually, for our vegetables which are pure, even she's planning to buy a cow. Really? Yeah. What do I you think about that? I don't know. I have no time to look after. She is more interested, so let her do, let her try. Why do you want to do this? Because uh, we are uh, hearing about this poison and uh, everything in all foods. Even we are importing these uh, foods from other countries. I have started cultivating fruits and vegetables. Just started. Okay, time. So tomatoes, what else will you grow? Tapioca, yeah. Tapioca, then uh, the tomato, the chili, then coconuts, uh, then banana. Lot of fruits, uh, mangosteen, rambutan. Uh, different types of mangoes, different types of uh, jackfruits. I planted, I think I planted uh, uh, 60 numbers of fruit, 
fruits, uh, trees, plants. I'm struck by the easy relationships in the market. Growers and customers like Sina, who's Hindu, Sheba, a Muslim, and Paul Joseph, who's Catholic, are united by their common passion for growing and spreading the gospel of healthy, organic food. I meet one of the market organizers, Sandhya Kumar, who's infectiously cheerful and energetic, and like so many, has taken on a second career as an organic gardener. Uh, last 24 years, I worked as a teacher in Navodaya school. Then uh, became passionate towards agriculture. Uh, I resigned the job and doing <laughs> agriculture now. <laughs> last two years, uh, I started agriculture I'm fully organic. On her fully organic acre of land, Sandhya grows the now familiar staples. Coconuts, bananas, eggplants, nutmeg, pepper. But she also has hens, goats, a cow, and a down-to-earth, very business-like approach. So with that cow, I am making ghee and paneer also, as value-added products. So ghee is clarified butter, I know, and paneer is, is cheese. Mm. Uh-huh. <laughs> With the hibiscus flower, I will make squash, uh -huh. like that. So you so make big. hibiscus flower squash? <laughs> so then the brinjal, I will make pickles. Uh, pickled eggplant. Mm -hmm. Then virgin coconut oil also I am making. Our own coconut, the, with the, that I am making virgin coconut oil. Plenty of people are waiting for these organic products. So no problem at all selling. <laughs> that is very good. <laughs> Milk also I am selling. The, cow, the milk from the cow? Goat. Goat milk also. Goat. 100 rupees per litre, the milk. Normally, uh, here, one litre uh, ordinary cow's milk costs 40 rupees. Now, goat milk costs 100 rupees. That's the difference. Sandhya invites me to her farm. She lives in a large, cool house shaded by coconut palms and jackfruit trees at the end of a long drive. Pleased to meet you. So this is our home. And your name is? Uh, Ajit. Ajit. Don't ask, ask anything about agriculture, organic. He will not uh, know anything about that. He is a businessman, you say. <laughs> businessman. But, but you support your wife. Supporting. But uh, fund is mine. Work is there. All funding is mine. Yes. <laughs> Ashit runs a successful chain of coffee shops that employ people with disabilities. Sujita leads the way out to the wide green garden behind the house. There are coconut palms, breadfruit, dozens of banana and mango trees, and in their shade, she plants spices. This year, I planted the ginger. Oh, that is ginger? Oh, it's ginger. Ginger, last year, last in our market, 10 kg I sold out. Wow. 100 rupees per kg. 100 like rupees a kilogram? Oh. Non-organic, 60 rupees per kg. Non-organic. But, but organic, 100. We thread our way through her lush jungle of fruit trees and spice bushes, their roots kept cool by palm fronds and dead leaves as mulch. We pass the goat pen and reach the bank of a small irrigation ditch where her dark brown cow is grazing. Her name is Muta, which means pearl. Around her banana trees, Sandia has spread the goat's droppings, and she says the cow and her calf give useful products beyond milk. We walk to her cowshed, basically just a roof of interlaced palm fronds over a concrete floor that slopes down to a shallow tank in one corner. In this tank, we will collect urine. 
these two buckets every weekly once i made that organic manure uh, with the cow dung uh, cow urine then jaggery then soil uh-huh. jaggery is concentrated raw sugar made from coconut palms Sandia says that manure not only fertilizes her plants but has transformed her soil since she started her organic garden 2 years ago. Every year I can feel the change in this soil. Huh? Just 2 years before I felt this soil as dead. Now I can feel it just just smart like me. The soil <laughs> It's full of earthworms and leaf mold now she says. As we head back to her house, Sandia confides, "My husband is elephant lazy like that we I called. <laughs> Understand what said? Very lazy, that much lazy. 24 hours he will sit like this, watching TV or doing something. <laughs> Then whatever I asked, will give. Money. No inquiry, no interventions, nothing. It it sounds like a perfect marriage." <laughs> <laughs> Sandia and Ajit and the investment of labor and cash they're prepared to make are typical of Kerala's middle-class backyard and rooftop gardeners. And they're part of the state government's calculation for how it can reach its ambitious green Kerala goals, 100% organic food by 2020. At least as far as vegetables are concerned. For Living on Earth, I'm Helen Palmer in Kerala, India. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Thurston Briscoe, Jenny Doring, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Liz Malloy, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lierstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, iTunes, and Google Play. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from Living on Earth. can see us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Happy New Year. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy, and from Carl and Judy Ferenbach of Boston, Massachusetts. PRI Public Radio International.